to the Edible Gardens podcast, where we talk about how your edible garden can also be your beautiful landscape. I'm your host, Nanette Blair. Thanks for joining me. My dream is to make good food accessible to everyone. And in my opinion, the best definition of good food is nutritious, delicious, and safe. And it doesn't get any better than picking fresh fruit, herbs, veggies straight off the plant where you know what went into it from start to finish. Also, you won't find any tomato cages here. As a matter of fact, there's a lot you won't find here, including pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, or any of the other sides. But what you will find here are landscapes that are designed for beauty, reflection, fun, and entertaining, and the list goes on to whatever you want. After all, it's your home, your yard, and your taste, and beauty truly is in the eye of the beholder. Okay, you know that garden you've been thinking about, either the one you already have that just needs a little more oomph, or the one that's been in your head for who knows how long. Well, I know you're ready. I know I'm ready. So let's dig in. Okay, today we are wrapping up this little mini-series on what an establishment guild is. And we are going to be talking about insectary today. And basically, insectary, I, I don't like that word. For some reason, it's really hard for me to say. If you hear me say insectary, yes, I know it is insectary, but for some reason it just comes out that way. I guess I just made up a new word. I'm going to trademark. That's my word, <laughs> insectiary. But basically that means anything that's going to bring in the insects and especially the beneficial insects. You will also hear them called predators. That's because they prey on the pests. And whenever I talk to the kids at the school garden, I always tell them the ladybug is like the lion and the aphids are like the gazelles. The lion will feed on the gazelles. The good bugs will prey on the pests. And the beneficial insects are also going to pollinate. If you have fruit trees, if you have squash, if you have tomatoes, if you have peppers, you're going to have all these good guys that are going to pollinate, bring in your pollinators, that are going to do the job for you. And yes, there are some people that it's so sad. And I heard a story about this one time. It's so sad, but they have to hand pollinate their stuff to ensure that they have good crop production. In the insectary, I don't like that word. I, I just, I don't know why I have such a problem with that word. But you will hear people in the gardening world say that, insectary. But I'm just going to keep saying beneficial insects. This is where you're going to be adding a lot of color to your garden. And this is why it makes sense to call this an edible landscape. You can kind of see the trend here in that we are mixing up everything. And why not go ahead and make it pleasing to the eye? Why not let it go ahead and be an, a landscape that you would feel peaceful walking into that you would feel um, proud of, that you would feel beauty when you're walking out there. It's a place of fun because when you are walking out there with one of your guests, say, or, or whatever, and they say, oh, is that a pepper? 
yeah, that's a pepper growing up in there. Oh, is that passion fruit? I see. What kind of flower is that? Yeah, that's a passion flower. So this is where you're going to be adding a lot of color. So there are many, many insects that are attracted to one certain color, like this bug is going to be attracted to blue. This one is attracted specifically to red. I don't worry about that so much. I just, again, let's just mix it all up. Let's create a lot of biodiversity in the way of plants. And by bringing in these plants, we're hanging the welcome sign said, hey, you're invited. Come into this garden. We want you here. When we introduce all of those beneficial insects, we're also creating another level of biodiversity, just meaning we have a lot of different insects coming in. We're creating a little microcosm. As far as the design opportunity, you could do something, say, like a pride garden. And I love doing this. If you are a TCU fan, then you can bring in things like crocus. You can bring in salvia. You can do things that it may not be the right PMS color, or Pantone matching system color that the school has for their official purple color, but you can do a lot of purple. I like to mix things up because I want to insure I want that insurance policy of that biodiversity with all of the different insects. But I have talked to a friend whose kids went to they were both at the time going to um, the University of Arkansas. And we talked about a pride garden that was a lot of reds. But this is your opportunity to bring in, you know, here in our towns, they're orange. And I know like the University of Tennessee, the volunteers are orange. And there's a lot of different plants that are black. There's just so many, there's blue. There's just so many ways that you can have fun with this part of it. Even though there's a very scientific purpose for bringing in the colors that you're bringing in. Again, I don't really worry about which bugs are attracted to which color. If I'm planting squash and I know that the squash bugs are going to want to eat that, then I will plant the plant that brings in the predator that will prey on that squash bug. And there's a lot of them. And I'm going to get into a list of the different uh, plants that I have accumulated in my database over time and that I've planted in my garden and I'll go over that list with you here shortly But I just wanted you to know that you know all this beauty that you're creating for yourself And again, I really believe that beauty is important. I used to think gosh Do I really care about what other people think am I doing this for myself? But it's how it makes me feel. I just love being able to see all the color. It's like way better than seeing the desert, right? <laughs> it's way better than just seeing green. It's just interesting to me. It makes me feel a certain way. And that's why I say beauty is in the eye of the beholder because it should make you feel the way you want to feel. Maybe that's peaceful. Maybe that's happy. Now, some people will do all white because all white really pops at night. When you have all white flowers, it's something that really stands out at night. And then I would say it's not just the flowers, but also consider putting out some other kinds of welcome signs. And that could be uh, water. Uh, you know, the insects like water. When you see dragonflies, you know they're always around a lake or a body of water somewhere. I would put them in 
some sort of a container that's going to hold the water. Now, there's some beneficial insects like bugs and beetles and spiders that are always going to stay low to the ground. So you might want to consider putting something low to the ground. And when you go water your plants, you know, you can just water it then. If you're afraid of mosquito larvae, you know, you change out that water periodically. When you go to water, you just, if it's a shallow dish, you can just spray the water hose in there and it's going to blow out anything that's in there to clean it out. But a lot of your insects are going to prey on that mosquito larva as well. Another thing, you have a bird bath for your birds, your insects are going to also come, your flying insects are going to come feed on or drink from that bird bath as well. You might even want to consider putting out something like um, a brush pile. And I know that sounds kind of scary. Some people would think, oh my gosh, I'm going to have snakes. Or it's going to attract something that I don't want in there. But it could be a pile of rocks. When I was a little girl, me lightning bugs everywhere. And I just love that. You know, I would catch them and put them in a mason jar. And that's just one of those like rites of passage. And I think, you know, the older that I've gotten, I think, gosh, are they all gone? And then I went to a state park with my family. We went camping and they were just everywhere. I was like, okay, good. They're not gone because I just hadn't seen them in a long time. And then when we moved to the property where we are now, they were just everywhere. And we have, half of our property is wooded in the back. And I did a little research and I found out that the glowworm is the larva for the lightning bug. And the glowworm is a fierce predator because it eats the pests that like to prey on our food crops. I didn't know that a glowworm was a really fierce predator. This is something that I just found out in the last few years, but I love to see the lightning bugs. Even if it wasn't a fierce predator, I would still want to create that habitat that they like. They are very shy, which a lot of these beneficial insects are. They're very shy. Like I said, it could be a pile of rocks, just something to shelter, and it could be like we talked about uh, in the ground cover where you have a low-lying plant that, that grows low to the ground. It is a weed barrier, but it also provides shelter. You know how I said that a lot of these things overlap. They serve a multi-purpose. These plants serve a multi-purpose or a mulch so serves a multi-purpose. But anything that's low to the ground is going to shelter things like uh, ladybugs or any kind of beetles or uh, spiders. If you're scared or allergic to bees, there are a lot of these parasitic wasps that are so tiny that you need a magnifying glass to see them. And what would look like a stinger to you, if you could see it, they're harmless to us, but if you could see it, it would look like a stinger. So it's classified as a wasp. It does, it's not like a yellow jacket. It's not like, you know, one of these things that you think of dive bombing you and they're just vicious and they're just out to get you. <laughs> these little parasitic wasps, what they have, this little stinger looking thing is actually an ovipositor and that's how it inserts its eggs down into, say, a worm. And this egg will hatch inside the worm 
and it will grow and feed on that worm like a parasite. So that's why they call it parasitic or parasitoid wasps. And then there's some flies like that, but it's like a scene from Alien, you know, they just burst out of this worm or this insect and you have what looks like a mummy left over. You know, there are some, some things that like a ladybug, did you know that ladybugs can bite? But I wear gloves in the garden for this reason. When I see something, especially a juvenile insect, that I'm not really sure what it is, I'll go look it up. I have field guides, I have books, I have the internet. I'll take pictures of it, I'll put it in an identification group that I have found on Facebook, and I will ask someone, what do you think this is? And I'll get, you know, 10 different answers. But it gives me leads to what it is, and then I'll go look it up. I'll go look up this one. No, it's not like that. I'll look up another one. No, it's not like that. I'll look up another one. Okay, it's more like that. But I'll find out what it is, what I feel comfortable for what it is. And then I'll know, do I want to take that out and throw it out or kill it or put it in a bucket of soapy water or something like that? And I used to do that. I don't do that so much anymore because if it's aphids, let's say, I turn the leaf over and I see a lot of ladybug eggs on the other underside, or um, if I take a picture with my cell phone and then I blow it up really, really big, I can see that there's some of those little parasitic wasps on, in there feeding on those aphids. So again, if you don't have some of the bad bugs, which I call them the good, the bad, the ugly, you got the good bugs that are your beneficial insects, you got your bad bugs that are your pests, and the ugly bugs that are just kind of a mix of in between. <laughs> but I'll, I'll look under that leaf and I'll see, oh, okay, well, there's some good guys there too. I'm just gonna let them do their job. I may just pull that leaf off and take it away and move it somewhere else where I know it's not a problem for aphids, but I'll go ahead and let those good guys hatch. If I see a tomato hornworm on one of my plants, if it doesn't, I'll look to see if it has any eggs attached to it that are pupae for a brachinoid wasp, and, and I'll see if it has any pupae on it. It's being a parasite for that worm, if it doesn't, I'll take that worm off and I'll go feed it to my chickens. The chickens get a treat that day. <laughs> but yes, you will see some of the good guys with the bad guys. But you know what? If the good guys don't have anything to eat, they're not going to stay. Why would they stay? You know, why would they stay somewhere where they're going to starve? They're just not going to. That's just not how nature works. So if you go and you buy the good bugs from an organic store, uh, which I don't believe you should do, why would they stay there? What you can do to bring them in and get them for free is plant some of these plants. If you use a pesticide, even or an organic pesticide like diatomaceous earth or lemongrass oil or orange oil, it's still a pesticide. These insects have an exoskeleton. So their skeleton is on the outside of their body and everything else is on the inside of their body. But when they walk over this diatomaceous earth, which is organic, you can eat it. I mean, they have a food grade. 
some people eat it in third world countries to uh, get rid of parasites in their stomach. And you can feed it to your animals and things like that to get rid of parasites. But when they walk over this diatomaceous earth, it's like a death of a thousand cuts. It's going to nick them and nick their skeleton, their exoskeleton, and they're just going to basically dehydrate or bleed to death. They're not going to be able to keep the moisture in and they will die. If you use that, it's going to do that for anything. It's going to do that with the good guys as well as the bad guys. The way that orange oil or lemongrass oil would work, it suffocates their exoskeleton. And I used to do this when I first started gardening. You can spray your plants with like Dawn dish soap. <laughs> this is what I did and it was fun and I didn't know any better. If I saw squash bugs or something like that, you can, you know, do a water solution of Dawn dish soap and spray the bugs and it will, they'll just fall over dead. But it's a way that you can do some spot insect control or hand control. It, that's how the lemongrass oil works. That's how the orange oil works. If you spray it, it's going to kill everything. It's going to cover that exoskeleton where they breathe through and they'll just suffocate. But you're killing the good guys with the bad guys. So I'm not, that's why I'm not a big believer in, even in organic methods. There's something else called BT, Bacillus thuringiensis. It's a natural bacteria that occurs in nature. And so they say it's all natural. They say it's organic. And this is one of the big things that organic people do. But if you look it up and you read about it, as far as safety in the food that we eat, a lot of these big ag farmers are using BT, but they have found that it causes leaky gut. And what this does, this bacteria will get down inside the insect or the pest and it basically explodes its stomach from the inside out. And they have found that when humans eat this, now this is something that I read, this is something that someone else did a study on, I did not, I don't have a bunch of lab rats, I don't have a bunch of human trials, but I did see where someone else was saying that it causes leaky gut. That BT is not a great thing for humans to eat. I mean, now, it occurs naturally, but again, that's that reductionism thing. Oh, okay, well, if BT does this in insects, let's just go ahead and spray it on everything. Uh, instead of saying, you know, maybe it's just a little bit is all we need. In nature, nature does it that way. Wherever nature wants to send it, let's just let, your, let nature do its thing. But anyway, so that's why I'm not real big on organic cures, on what they say is quote unquote government certified. They get the stamp of approval from the government and a bunch of bureaucrats and a bunch of people that are lobbying to say, hey, why don't you approve our product to be organic? I, you know, nature just takes care of things. And if you don't like to see creepy crawlers, well... That's a problem for you in the garden. So that's something you're going to have to deal with on a personal level. If you're allergic to bees, you know, are you the kind of person that's going to let life stop you from doing things? I'm not judging. I'm not allergic. I cannot speak to that. But if you don't like creepy crawlers, I use, I always wear gloves because ladybugs will bite 
praying mantids will bite. I've seen pictures where praying mantids will take down a hummingbird, but yet they're still really, really good in the garden. If you see a monk, growing up my whole life, I've seen, you remember, who was it? Not the karate kid. I don't think it was a karate kid. Who was that? Kung Fu? <laughs> where you would see the monks holding... Wow, Kung Fu. I haven't thought about Kung Fu in a long time. <laughs> it's an old, old movie. If you don't know who, what it is and you're not my age, but they would hold a praying mantid, and that's a really big deal because praying mantids, I've never bitten, but I've heard that it's an excruciating, painful bite. I mean, these guys are very fierce predators. They're champions in your garden. They will eat just about anything. As a matter of fact, I think there's like 500 eggs in a sack when you go and you, if you learn how to identify an egg sack or a cocoon, then you'll know what's in there. But they say that 500 of these guys will be born at the same time or hatch from the same sack, but one will survive. That's how they're so fiercely competitive, but they're great companions for you. They're great predators for you in the garden. But anyway, that's why I always wear gloves. I just don't know what I'm going to grab. I don't know what I'm going to touch. Sometimes I go out there and I'm not wearing gloves. My dad will make fun of me. He's like, why are you wearing gloves? But <laughs> as a general rule, I like to wear gloves in the garden because I don't know, you know, am I going to grab one of those thorny cat caterpillars or an asp or a bee or, you know, it may just be a honeybee, but still, I mean, they're going to, they're not out to get me but they may sting me out of a defense mechanism. I've tried to train myself as to what the juvenile stages are of these pests or good guys, any kind of insect. I'll try to figure out what does it look like when it is young. I try to find out what that looks like. Again, if you go in and spray or put down diatomaceous earth or you spray pesticides in there whether it's organic or not the next when there's no bugs there the next bugs that will move in are going to be your pests that's just the way it is the next bugs that come in are going to be pests as far as a list of what the best plants are to attract beneficial insects i would say anything that has a flower and I would also say anything that provides shelter and shade. They just like to hide under the shade of a ground-hugging plant or something that's going to really just provide a lot of shelter. But here's a list of the things that I've accumulated over time. Again, I had this all on Excel spreadsheet. I'm going to go through this list really quickly. I don't even know if I'm going to give the whole list because it's really, really long. And in my, I'm going to tell you, though, in my spreadsheet, I have them listed um, as annual and perennial. Again, if there's anything that I can put in the garden that's going to be perennial, it's less work for me year after year. Once I've put it in, say I put something in this year, don't have to worry about it next year. And the things that I put in last year, I don't have to worry about it this year. The things that I put in two years ago, I don't have to worry about it in the future. I like to keep it what's annual and what's perennial. Put in perennials where I can. That's even better for the beneficials. So, angelica, anise, borage, calendula, caraway, catnip, chamomile, that's German chamomile and Roman chamomile, chervil, curry plant, dill, fennel, lavender, lovage, nasturtiums, parsley, rue, spearmint, 
Sweet Annie, Sweet Sicily, Tansy, Bee Balms, um, Gay Feathers, Golden Asters, anything that's an aster in the aster family is going to be great. Uh, golden Rods, Hardy Marguerite, Lavender Cotton, Painted Daisy, Pincushion Flowers, Purple Cone Flowers, which is the same thing as Echinacea, uh, Rockcrest, Sea Hollies, Yarrows, Candy Tuff, Bachelor Buttons, Black Eyed Susans, Blanket Flower, Blue Eyed African Daisies, Calliopsis, Cosmos, Dwarf Morning Glory, Gazania, Marigolds, Mexican Sunflower, any, again, anything that's an aster, the Common Sunflower, Swan River Daisies, Sweet Alyssum's one of my favorite, Zinnia's one of my favorite, uh, Wild Asters, Buttercups, Cornsbury, Dandelion, Lamb's Quarters, Wild Mustard, Oxide Daisy, Queen Anne's Lace, Red Sorrel, Alfalfa, Buckwheat, Clovers, Winter Rye. That was a list that I have been working on for a long time, but you know, again, I have decided that just about anything with a bloom is going to bring in the pollinators. And a lot of the things that I talked about in the fumigant series that was going to repel or confuse a lot of pests, those also, when they don't flower all year long, but when they do flower, it will bring in the pollinators. The camphor in the leaves of, say, um, lavender or rosemary, anything that has that really strong scent, um, the bugs may not like being around the leaves, but the pollinators will love to come around the blooms or the blossoms. A lot of these things have a dual or multi-purpose. I wanted to tell you also, in my spreadsheet, I also have which of these plants bring in which of these beneficial insects. So it's either a pollinator or a predator. But I'll just give you one example here. Which one has, all right, I'll just start at the top. Lacewing, uh, Angelica attracts lacewings. Very good beneficial insect. And ladybugs, specifically. Some of these are just generalists. It just brings in everything. Borage brings in bees. And some of these things, you might want to know which ones specifically are good for bees because if you are allergic or you have a child that's allergic or you just don't want bees around your front porch, you may want to consider planting the plants that are good for bees out away from your front porch where you sit all the time or your door. I wouldn't plant these like right by your front door or right where your lawn chair is, where you have your outdoor kitchen, where you sit all the time. Um, let's see, caraway is especially good for parasitic or predatory wasps and flies. Catnip is very good for bees, cats. <laughs> I would consider cats a predator. And lacewings, parasitic wasps. German chamomile is really good for hoverflies and parasitic wasps. Same thing with Roman chamomile. Dill is good for hoverflies, bees, uh, ladybugs, and parasitic wasps, and it shelters spiders. That must be a low-growing dill because there's two different kinds of dill. There's a really tall dill, and then there's a short dill. Fennel is good for ladybugs, hoverflies, and parasitic wasps, and tachnid flies. Um, lavender is good for bees and parasitic wasps. 
So you can see kind of how this goes on. And if you want more information about what these are, and this is a culmination of a lot of different resources, but I did get the basis of this out of that Great Garden Companions book by Sally Jean Cunningham and probably Carrots Love Tomatoes and some other books that I have. If you're interested in this in great detail, I would say go buy this book. I don't even know if they have Barnes and Nobles anymore. <laughs> That's where I bought mine. I bought this twice. This is a really great book for uh, beneficial insects. Uh, you can probably find it on Amazon. It's Great Garden Companions. I did do a book review of this on my Facebook Live at Ediful Gardens, so you can see what the cover looks like, but it's again, it's by Sally Jean Cunningham. Okay, so I think that it's time to just tie it all together. We have talked this week about building an establishment guild. Today we talked about insectary or beneficial insects, the good guys to prey on the bad guys. We've talked about weed barriers, uh, we've talked about fumigants, we've talked about nitrogen fixers, and we talked about dynamic accumulators. But I also wanted to give one quick little bonus. Maybe a lot of you already know about establishment guilds. Maybe this is your first time to ever hear it. This one in particular is on my plum guild. What I did first was I put down the known pests and the known diseases. And when you look this up, oh my gosh, it's like looking at WebMD. You know, first you start off with a rash and the next thing you know, you have scurvy or something horrible when it was just a rash. <laughs> but if you look at all the known pests and all the known, known diseases, the, the plum trees, and I looked up what all the pests are and what all the diseases were, and I put them in this template. That some of the known pests are tarnished plant bug, leaf roller, aphids, green fruit worm, cherry fruit fly, mites, oriental moth, rose chafer, borers, Chinese beetle, leaf hopper, thrips, root knot nematodes, snout beetle, plum curculio, scab, pigeons, and winter moth. And those were the known pests that I could find. And I looked at a lot of different sources again. Uh, and some of these are not even a consideration for me, maybe because I where I live, maybe because it, the climate that I am in, maybe because it's arid or humid or whatever, but some of these are a non-issue because of where I live and will be the same thing for you, maybe in a different way. The known diseases are a lot and they're mostly fungal the diseases that they have are mostly fungal or bacterial uh, but a lot of, in a lot of the cases the pests are the ones that spread the disease so if it's not fungal it's because of a pest going from one plant that's diseased maybe in someone else's yard and then coming over into my yard and spreading that disease on my plants so what i did was i looked up which of these are the pests and then I looked because I have this spreadsheet I looked at which of those pests what is their natural predator then I decided which of these natural predators uh, like which plants or flowers what's the welcome sign that brings in those predators so for me <clears throat> uh, again this was a plum guild 
I decided to put in turmeric, which is something that would grow as an annual where I live because I do not live in a tropical climate. And I also have on here what role they play. I have like a letter in parentheses, what role they play in the establishment guild. But nitrogen fixtures, uh, to tick that box, I decided to do sweet pea, cow pea, beans, and clover. And I'll tell you again, this is something I did a couple years ago. I have planted blue bonnets, which is a lupine, which is a legume, which is a nitrogen fixer. The weed barrier day of this little mini series, I don't think I covered bulbs. Bulbs are a good weed barrier as well. But daffodil, thyme, oregano, and clover. Again, clover is playing a dual purpose. Oregano is playing a dual purpose. They're all playing a dual purpose here. Fumigants, I have daffodil, horseradish, calendula, and, you know, for a weed barrier, I did also plant, I'm thinking back, <laughs> back in time, I did also plant sweet alyssum in there. Dynamic accumulator, as I said, on the dynamic accumulator day, I just don't worry about dynamic accumulator anymore. But I do have plantain growing in there, and I'm letting it grow because I've found out that it's got such great medicinal qualities, and it's a dynamic accumulator, whatever. Go back and listen to the dynamic, dynamic accumulator show if you didn't listen to that show because it's just not something that I worry about anymore. The blooms from the sweet peas, the beans, the clover, the mints, they're going to attract pollinators. And then the calendula is going to attract pollinators. But I also have lavender and petunias. There's a lot that I learned in the very beginning through my own experience, through my own eyes, through my own garden, I can see now what I just, just don't worry about anymore. But insectiary, today's thing, it was huge. You know, this is something that is huge. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to end with a story. And I think it's one of the saddest stories I've ever heard when it comes to gardening. And I know that it's true, but it, this was someone that I know personally so her dad lives in a very posh neighborhood of Dallas. This is an area where everybody gets their lawns done and all these companies are coming out and taking care of lawn for these people. It's probably some company like True Green. I don't know who it was, but they're spraying um, pesticides and herbicides and fungicides, you know, to keep everything just looking pretty. And he grows tomatoes and peppers in containers in his backyard, but he has to hand pollinate everything. I just thought, oh my gosh, that's just so sad. That is just, you know, to know that if you live in an area like that, not, you know, in a posh neighborhood, but somewhere where they're just spraying all the time, you're, these are your neighbors and you have no control over that. Well, you could try to do, make yourself your own insurance policy where you plant all of these plants. They're going to bring in the insects and your good bugs and your pollinators. And maybe you'll have a little oasis out in the middle of a would-be desert. Maybe it won't do any good. I don't know. I just don't know. It's just a bad situation. As, as If you're trying to grow your own food, this is something that is a real issue it are these true green true lawn uh 
I don't know. I, I don't know who all these companies are. I just don't use them. Sometimes my neighbors across the street, I'll see a truck like that. And I'm just really grateful that um, when we moved here, I've just never had a problem. We had ladybugs out the wazoo. We had we have bees everywhere. We just have all kinds of biodiversity. But anyway, that was kind of a little rant. Uh, I think that we tied it all together. Uh, we talked about establishment guilds, all of the components in establishment guilds. I'm just going to go back over this plum guild one more time. So the plum tree is in the center. All around it, I have different things like fumigants. I have horseradish, calendula, cilantro, daffodils, <clears throat> excuse me, garlic. These are all of the things that I have planted as fumigants around my plum trees. The weed barriers that I have planted there, again, are daffodils, thyme, sweet alyssum, oregano, clover, and blue bonnets. And the dynamic accumulators, I just don't worry about anymore. The, benef the ones that attract beneficial insects or any of those with a flower. And the nitrogen fixers are peas and beans and clover. So, yeah. So that is my plum guild. And it just looks pretty. Oh, lemongrass is another thing that I have out there that is a fumigant. There's no flowers on it, so it's not attracting any beneficial insects. But yeah, lemongrass, it's just beautiful. I love it. It's one of my favorites now. <laughs> okay. And as we wrap up today's show, I want you to know this podcast is dedicated to you. If you're searching for a better source of food for yourself and the ones you love, I'm inviting you to come along on this journey with me. And if you don't want to miss any future episodes, you can hit that subscribe button and let's all figure out together how we can put delicious, nutritious, and safe food on the table. And remember, your edible garden can also be your beautiful landscape. Until next time, have a great week, everybody. Bye for now.